I want you to imagine two groups of people, okay? First group, beautiful models, right? Won't give you any suggestions. I'm sure you can populate that list on your own. No lusting, just imagine them. Second group, the Pharisees. Now, it might seem upon first reflection that there's no way that you could divide up humanity and get both of these groups on the same side. I mean, they're so different. One of them would have lots of clothing. Think about the sashes and the robes, and the other, maybe not so much. One group would be meticulously keeping the law, and the other group is not really known for that sort of thing. So it would seem that these two groups would have nothing in common. Yet what if I told you that there was a very important way, perhaps the most important way, that these groups were actually very much alike? Well, you'd say, how is that possible? Well, if we look through Jesus' eyes, we see beyond mere superficialities. We see deep into our hearts. And with Jesus around, things that normally wouldn't be put together end up being put together, and things that normally would be together end up being blown all apart. It's pretty amazing, and we'll see that as we work through this passage. But let me warn you, looking at this passage can be a little bit dangerous because it does reveal our own hearts, and it's not always pretty in there. But friends, the thing to keep in mind at the very outset is that Jesus wants to reveal the ugliness in our hearts, not to condemn us, but so that we would turn from our sins and follow after him. So turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll begin at verse 1. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered with him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. This is serious stuff, isn't it? And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many other such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And when he he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, 
then you also are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's just pray. Oh, Lord, help us understand this passage. Teach us these things from Jesus, that we may grow into the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, reading this passage reminds me of a quote I've mentioned it before by C.S. Lewis. He says that Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He's the king. And here we see Jesus is most certainly not safe, is he? I mean, he, he judges the Pharisees harshly, calling them hypocrites. He, he even rebukes the disciples. You also do not understand. And then he insults every living human on earth by telling them how wicked their hearts are. You see, Jesus here is probing down into the depths of our hearts to locate the problem, and when he touches the problem, it hurts. But keep in mind here, Jesus is not trying to cause us further injury. He's trying to heal. Jesus here is like the doctor feeling for that place where the pain is sharpest so that she can treat the infection. Now, what is the uh, infection that Jesus is putting his finger on here? Well, let me just describe for you how I see the problem here, and then we'll see how that works out in this passage. I think what's going on here, the problem in our hearts, is that we corrupt the law. We corrupt rules. That's what we do. And we do so because we have a corrupt heart. We corrupt the rules because we have a corrupt heart. And those are the two things we'll see in this passage. First, we corrupt the law. We corrupt the rules. Let me explain, and I think you'll, you'll easily see what's going on here. The Pharisees have this tradition of washing their hands before they eat. Now, please understand, this is not a matter of killing germs, okay? It was a matter of maintaining ritual purity before God. It was never required in the law. God never commanded this, washing of hands all the time. But somewhere along the line, it became part of their tradition. You see that word a number of times here, right? Tradition. When I read it, I think of the fiddler on the roof and, you know, tradition. Um, and that's what they did. You know, it's, it's this, what, it's what we do just because what we, it's what we do. Every Israelite knew that if you wanted to be a good citizen and acceptable before God and acceptable before one another, you had to wash your hands. And, and washing their hands made them feel good about themselves. It made them feel right before God. I think we can actually all relate to this, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But, but first we want to see that the disciples did not wash their hands. My guess is that Jesus had something to do with that. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, basically, what's up with that? Don't, don't your people know that this is like a serious thing handed down from the elders? Now, on the face of it, this could look like a relatively innocent question. This could have been an opportunity. They, they might have been expecting here Jesus to then uh, debate with them the legitimacy of this tradition. And a number of the Pharisees would probably have been open to that sort of academic discussion. But Jesus instead judges them very sharply. Look there at verse 6. Well, or you could translate that, good did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you. Hypocrites. He blasts them. And then he quotes Isaiah to them. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And you could say there, Jesus, Jesus, this is just a question. Do you really have to call them hypocrites? I mean, this is your chance to debate with the law with them. Show them you're right. Oh, but see, the problem here is that they have so corrupted the law that, that their understanding of the law and Jesus' understanding of the law in no way relate to one another. There's, there's no common ground. Now, of course, Jesus does not object to physical washing of hands. Friends, we're going to eat in a bit. If your hands are dirty, wash them. It's okay. Do not apply this sermon by not washing your hands. And if you prepared the food, I, I do hope that you washed your hands. That's a way of loving one another. If not, just go ahead and grab your food, and I'm sure there'll be plenty. Um, the problem is they, they're thinking that they're washing their hands is a way of maintaining ritual purity before God even though God never commanded it. And notice how Jesus interprets what they've done. He's very clear about this. He says it three times. Verse 8, 9, and 12. Verse 8, he says, You leave the commands of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own traditions. And in verse 12, he says that they are making void the word of God by tradition. In other words, understand this, Jesus sees that if you hold to an authoritative tradition alongside the Word of God, if you put them right next to each other, you necessarily take away from the Word of God. I have conversations with people who are members of a cult sometimes, and they, they claim often that they are respecting the authority of Scripture, but then they claim, oh, but you need to add this other book alongside Scripture, or you need to add papal infallibility alongside Scripture, or, or you know, this other person's leadership alongside Scripture, and it has equal authority. But see, Jesus wouldn't let us say that. Because according to Jesus here, once you've decreed something else alongside the authority of Scripture, you've invalidated the authority of Scripture. You've made it void. You've rejected it. You can't have both. Does that make sense? Uh, let's try to understand why that is. It's a perfect test case we have here. What's going on here? God had, if we look back in the Old Testament, we would see that God did command the priests to wash before performing the sacrifices. That was a command of God, and the priests were right to do that, to obey God. But eventually, some religious figures somewhere in there decided that, no, no, just the priest washing isn't good enough. If everybody washes their hands, well, that's going to be even better. If some is good, more is better. And Moses, I'm sorry, Mark tells us in verse 4 here, there were many other traditions that they observed as well. So, so here is their approach to the law. Step one, find a good thing that you're supposed to do. Step two, multiply that ad nauseum until you've made a whole lot of rules about it. And then we'll be more pure and acceptable before God. Now, now, why does Jesus say this is making void the word of God? Well, remember what the law was intended to be in the first place. The law is first and foremost a revelation of what God likes and what God doesn't like. If you look at the law as a revelation of what God likes and what he doesn't like, your, your goal is going to be then to keep exactly to it. You've got no reason to go below it. And no reason to go above it, because it's a revelation of what God likes. But their approach of adding to the law demonstrates, well, first and foremost, that they don't actually believe that it's a revelation from God, because if they did, they would realize it's sufficient. But not only that, 
They're looking at the law as if it was a way to score points with God. And that's the way religion works. Religion is a system whereby if I want to get something good from God, I have to work really hard or do something, deny myself. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but it's worth it in the end because you'll earn enough, if you earn enough favor with God, then you can get things that you want, like a comfortable afterlife or a stress-free marriage or, or no marriage or your kids to turn out the way you want them to. Or according to some people, you know, a new house, a new car, whatever. And in this religious system... It's to your advantage to have as many rules as you possibly can because every one of those rules is another opportunity to score even more points. So you have more favor with God and then you get the thing you want. But friends, that's not Christianity. That's religion. In in Christianity, the law has nothing to do with earning points before God. The law has everything to do, rather, with a relationship with God. Read the Old Testament. When God gives the law, God says, I am the Lord your God, paraphrasing here, who took you out of slavery. You are my people. I am your God. And now here are the things that you should do in order to please me. There's nothing at all in there about earning points to be acceptable for God. Instead, it's everything about already being in a relationship with God and then living out of that relationship in a way that pleases God. The problem is the Pharisees have taken away all the relational elements of living before God. And and this is what he judges them for. Verse 6 there. This people honors me with their lips, but their what? Hearts are far from me. Their heart is far from God. Their heart is not in it. There's no relationship. Let me ask you this. When is your heart most in what you're doing? It's when you're not doing it as a means to a greater end, but you're doing it as an end in itself. I mean, the student who loves studying for the sake of studying is going to give his or her heart to studies much more than the one who's just doing it for a grade. I mean, the word amateur means for the love of it. Someone who's not doing it in order to get something out of it just because they love it. Their heart's in it. Listen to this. When you obey God as a means to a greater end, You aren't giving your heart to God. You are giving your heart to whatever you hope your obedience to God is going to get you. Your obedience is a business deal. It's not true love. Friends, is that how you approach God? Let me try to illustrate this for you. Shortly after Becky and I were married, she sent me to the grocery store one day with a list. Husbands, you might remember the first time that happened. Mildly terrifying experience, right? On that list was, was candy corn. I remember it very clearly. I knew that she liked candy corn and that I couldn't get it any other time of the year. So I came home with at least a year's supply of candy corn. <laughs> Worked out okay. I think I became so sick of it that I haven't eaten it since. But think about this. I share that because I want you to imagine what would happen if every time I went to the grocery store... I did the same thing with the list that she gave me. What if on the list for Thanksgiving, it said a turkey, but I come home with my entire van filled with frozen turkeys? And she says, what's this? And I say, well, it's 27 frozen turkeys. Aren't you happy? You put down a turkey, and I figured if a turkey was good, 27 would be better. Now, now if I did that every time, well, (laughs) a lot of things would happen, but it would be soon apparent 
that I had no real intention of serving my wife and pleasing her. I was trying to prove something. I was trying to earn favor with her by going above and beyond. I was trying to score points. Think about what else I may be tempted to do. I'd be so proud of myself with those 27 turkeys. Man, I got frostbite on my fingers loading those in the car. I would be so proud of myself that I would be tempted to think it wasn't so bad if I forgot those other things on the list, like milk, eggs, bread, and toilet paper. Right? I think to myself, how upset could she be if I forget those things? I got 27 turkeys. Now, friends, you might think that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Verse 10, Jesus points out that there's a law that says these people need to honor their father and mother, and that means to take care of them. But the Pharisees developed this ingenious system whereby if they declared what they had was God's, then they, by law, couldn't give it away. Sorry, Mom and Dad. All the food I have is God's. Um, I can't give any of it away. You'll have to ask him for some. In other words... They ate with clean hands, but their parents starved. And they thought they were pleasing God. No wonder Jesus calls them hypocrites. You see, the principle here is that overdoing often proves underdoing. Overdoing proves underdoing. When you add to the law, when you make a tradition at the same level of the authority of God then you tend to think that by going above and beyond what God requires you to do, by doing something extra, it's okay if you slack on some other things required in Scripture. It's okay if you go below in other areas. Friends, the Bible understands this temptation, which is why the law specifically forbids what the Pharisees are doing here. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it that you may... Keep the commands of the Lord, your God, that I command you. We can understand how not taking away from the commands would help them keep the the law. But he says, "Don't, don't add to it either. Don't go above this law or below this law so that you may keep it. The Bible understands that if we go above it, we'll be tempted to go below it. It's kind of like, you know, you're walking across the log over a string. It doesn't really matter if you fall off to the right or to the left. The point is you fall off. Friends, that's why we as a church want to be very careful that we do not have traditions that carry the weight of the Word of God. That's why we as a church decided several years ago to take the part in our church covenant that forbid alcohol out. It's perfectly fine if you want to abstain from alcohol. But if you think that by abstaining from alcohol, you become a more pure Christian, you've misunderstood the meaning of the law. You've misunderstood the meaning of holiness. You've misunderstood the nature of God. That's also why we we don't have a dress code here. You can come however you want. We do that so that everybody feels welcome. We also do that so that nobody thinks that by keeping the dress code, they've earned something. They've scored points. Now, friends, it's, it's easy to spot those problems in other churches and the Pharisees, right? But Jesus wants us to look into our own hearts. Do, do you see yourself doing this at all? Friends, I meditated on this. Uh, this idea this week, and I saw it illuminated all sorts of things about my life, very sadly. And let me tell you one of the most common ways I see this worked out in people, in Christians, and that is that many people put so much time and effort into church programs and church functions, 
they neglect their own family. They go above in one area, and they think they can go below in another area. And the biggest problem if you're doing that is not simply that you've neglected your family, although that's really, really bad. The biggest problem that you're, is that your good works are actually offending God, even as you do them, because they, you, you do them thinking they earn you something. I remember a man saying to me once, I believe, he said, quote, I believed the lie that if I just worked really hard in Christian ministries, I didn't have to put in the hard work of being a good father. I thought my efforts in ministry would make it all work out okay. Praise God, that man realized his problem and corrected it before it was too late. And the most interesting thing happened. Not only was he far more attentive to his family, he was far more useful to his church. He actually loved people. Jesus said, by your love, not by your fulfilling of your duties, you will prove to be my disciples. Friends, that's why in the the letter you might have gotten, um, Steve and I put that if you're not doing the basic things of loving God and reading his word and praying to him and praying for others, then you need to think about why you're serving. It's not that we want to punish you by saying, hey, maybe you should step down. It's so that we don't, you don't get to heaven and you hear Jesus say, you hypocrite. Let's guard ourselves against that. Let's encourage one another. Now, Jesus has exposed the problem for what it is. We corrupt the law. But he's not yet done. He goes a bit deeper and explains where that problem comes from. It comes from the corruption in our hearts. The Pharisees and Jesus disagree about quite a lot in this passage. That I think is that's clearly apparent. But they do not disagree with the fact that there is something deep down inside that's wrong with us. The Pharisees acknowledge this insofar as they think that it's necessary to wash their hands to get rid of defilement. They're trying to cleanse themselves. They know there's something wrong with them. Jesus agrees that we're defiled. He just sees washing your hands as utterly inadequate. Look at verse 14. Jesus calls the people to him, and he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus is putting this in all caps, right? Exclamation mark. Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of a person is what defile him. And then he explains this in more detail at the end of verse 18 to the disciples. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? In other words, Jesus is saying, how you eat your food and the food that you eat makes no difference for your level of defilement because nothing that you put in your mouth has any impact on your heart. Obviously, there, Jesus doesn't mean your heart as a physical organ because, you know, we, it does impact our hearts, right? Cholesterol, fat, etc., you know the deal. No, he means your heart as the you deep down inside of you. The you that loves and hates, fears, longs, chooses, desires, that you. What you eat does not impact how pure or unpure your heart is. Now, we might say, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? I'm so glad we are modern people and don't have their superstitions that they do. Oh, really? Well, think about the whole foods movement. The push to eat organic or the you know, movement to eliminate all meat from your diet. Now, friends, these things are all well and good as long as we're doing it only to benefit our physical body. But I think so many people who are doing it are motivated to try to create this sense of inner purity. 
We think that if we can get the gluten out of our diet, we'll get the junk out of our souls. And that's not true. And then we look down on other people. Oh, what's that? Genetically modified food? You're not as pure as I am. I wouldn't eat such things. Again, nothing wrong with eating healthy. I try to do that. I have five young kids. I want to be as active as I can for as long as I can. I want to serve my family well. But if I think that eating healthy, by eating healthy, I'm becoming a better me, more pure inside. There's something deeply wrong with that. Friends, the same dynamic works with our physical appearance. And here's where that connection with models comes in. Some of us don't care at all what we eat. We give scrupulous attention to our physical appearance, to the purity of our skin, to our facial features, to to having that ideal form. Friends, there's nothing wrong in the world with being healthy or looking beautiful. But if how we look on the outside affects what kind of person we think we are on the inside, well, then something is deeply wrong. We've completely misunderstood how it is that we have inner purity. I remember one time, I confession time here. I hadn't gone to the dentist in a while. We were in Turkey, and the dentist quite honestly scared me. Different (laughs) understanding of the pain threshold there. But when I finally did go to the dentist, uh, the dentist said that I had the biggest cavity he had ever seen in his life. It, it oddly enough, didn't hurt, but but strangely, I, I felt this feeling of being dirty until I could get rid of it. I felt like the cavity sort of like defiled everything I did until it was gone. And then when he finally got the cavity out, I was elated. And afterwards, I reflected on that and thought, I think there was something really wrong with how I was thinking about myself. Yes, we should want to avoid cavities. Kids, brush your teeth. But we shouldn't think that having clean teeth gives us anything other than clean teeth. So if what comes from the outside in doesn't have any doesn't give us any purity on the inside, what does? Well, look there at verse 20. Jesus clearly tells us. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and the list goes on and on. In other words, you don't need to worry about what goes into you. You need to worry about what comes out of you out through your speech, through your actions, through your thoughts, desires, your words. For all of that comes out of the heart. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And because your heart is defiled, because your heart is evil, it is spewing out all sorts of evil things left and right. Friends, there's a particularly helpful application for mature Christians here. I think sometimes we are tempted to think that the way to avoid being polluted is by staying away from all those pollution in the world. You know, don't go here. Don't do that activity. Some of us even pull our kids out of school. Now, again, nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But if we think we can avoid being polluted by avoiding the evil out there, we've forgotten about the evil in here. And no amount of washing or attention to our health or our physical appearance or avoiding the pollution of the world will ever clean our hearts. The title for this sermon comes from uh, a line in Macbeth. She committed a murder and she keeps dreaming there's blood on her hands. She washes her hands, but they're still red. She says, out, damn spot, out. Will these hands never be clean? Will they? 
Is there then any solution for human defilement? Oh yes, there is. Jesus takes out our defilement. And He gives us His purity. Think about what happens to Jesus at the end of His life. They strip Him. They mock Him. They spit on Him. They beat Him. And they take Him outside the city, the place you take defiled, unclean things, and there they kill Him. Death is, in a sense, the ultimate defilement. But did Jesus have an evil heart? No. Well, why then did He take on that defilement? Well, friends, He took it on for us. He took the evil of our hearts upon Him. Our uncleanness went upon Him. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He was in a new body, incapable of death. And in that new body, Jesus is ultimate purity. Because death has no power over Him. He is the ultimate cleanness. The ultimate purity. The ultimate washing. And the good news of the Gospel is that He then shares that purity with us. The Bible talks about becoming Christians as a washing, a renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about a new birth. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The Bible talks about Christians being clothed in white linen. And friends, all of that we have in our union with Christ. The lesson of this passage is that if we depend upon ourselves, we can never do it. Any kind of moral reformation we try to enact on our own will never change our heart because it comes out of our hearts and is thus tainted with evil from the very outset. And any attempt to bring something in from the outside will fail because it won't get to our hearts. Solution? Believe in Jesus. Come into Him. The Bible says believing into Jesus. Coming into Him and getting a new heart. Ezekiel says, prophesies in the future what Christ will do. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and then you will be clean. He says, I will give them a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. That is not a heart according to the law that that tries to score points, but a heart of real relationship with God. A heart where we love Him. So come to Jesus and be clean. Let's pray.